In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A Carlo community in shock after three young lives are lost in a road tragedy. The young friends died when their car left the main road between Carlo Town and Wexford last night. The victims have been named this evening. These are very, very young people. They left last night, their families. They said goodbye to go out and enjoy a night. Three are never coming home. One is seriously injured in hospital. As farmers demonstrate across Europe and here tonight, we debate the issues bringing them onto the streets and ask, is this a growing political movement? And we talk to the Israeli ambassador, Dana Ehrlich, about the possible endgame in the Gaza war and civilian casualties. This is war, yes. Part of what we're doing is minimising those casualties. We are asking people to evacuate and then we're condemned for asking them to be evacuated. Bulgardi in Carlo are continuing to investigate a road accident that claimed the lives of three young people last night. The three victims have been named locally as Daryl Colbert from Kiltegan in County Wicklow, Michael Kelly from Nurney in County Carlow, who were both in their 20s, and 19-year-old Katie Graham from Arles in County Leash. A fourth young man was injured in the crash and is in hospital. Their deaths bring to 18 the number of road fatalities so far this year. Well, I'm joined now live by local Carlow councillor, John McDonald. John, you're very welcome to the programme. I listened to the priest who attended the scene last night. I listened to guards and paramedics who attended the scene. And they all used one word, and that was trauma. And this is a community that is traumatised this evening. Uh, yes. Uh, thank you, Kira. Uh, good evening. Uh, well, first of all, I'd like to express my sympathy and condolences to the families uh, who lost loved ones in that awful tra tragedy last night. Uh, prayers and thoughts were with them. Uh, I first learned this morning uh, when my good friend uh, Nigel Glynn rang me to inform me of the accident and the devastating news that his nephew was one of the victims. Uh, the Glynn family will be well known in the area uh, through bus hire and the steam engine community. Um, the community waking up to another tra tragedy there this morning is just devastating. Everybody's in shock and just so numb with the news. This is a particularly busy road, is it not? And although we don't know the cause of the accident last night, I believe conditions were quite difficult on the road. Yes, uh, Kira. it's a very busy road. It's a main road to Ross Lair, to the Europort. Uh, since Brexit now, there has been a dramatic increase in the amount of traffic on it. Uh, 
you know, it's the main road coming from the west, the Midlands and the north, uh, with access to Europe. So it's a very uh, heavily used road, yes. And I understand, uh, I think you live quite near to that area, that there has been a number of other serious crashes on this particular stretch of road. So this is a tragedy that has befallen this town in the past. Uh, yes, unfortunately, here there have been a number of fatalities over the last number of years. Uh, there's also been a, quite a number of accidents uh, over the last few years as well. So it is a dangerous part of the road. Um, how will the community gather around and support the three families that are no doubt devastated by this news? Uh, look, we're not the only community that has been affected by this. People always are very good. They will rally around and help the families uh, during this time of grief. All right, Councillor John MacDonald, uh, thank you for speaking to us uh, this evening and our thoughts and prayers do go out to those families impacted by this awful tragedy. Thank you for your time. Uh, moving on, farmers demonstrated across Europe today for better incomes and less red tape. And protests are taking place here in Ireland tonight in solidarity with them. I'm joined here in studio to discuss by Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, Independent TD Verona Murphy, ICMSA President Dennis Drennan, environmental campaigner journalist John Gibbons, and in Brussels tonight by news correspondent Jack Perrault. Jack, I want to come to you first. Could you describe for me uh, the scenes in Brussels today? Hi, Kira. Yeah, I'm here in a nice warm office right now, but we've been out on the streets all day. Uh, the farmers collected on Wednesday night around 8pm local time. There's been over a thousand tractors blocking all of the roads in the EU's quarter outside of the European Parliament. And this morning it started to get a little bit testy. We saw tyres um, being set, set alight. And at one point, we saw a statue pulled down of a British industrialist that's there on Place Luxembourg. We saw uh, protesters uh, throwing eggs at buildings like the European Parliament, setting fire and setting uh, flares on fire as well, fireworks in the air. It's been pretty chaotic uh, and it's been pretty active. But they do have a message. And what they're trying to say is that they're concerned about the red tape and the pressures that are being put on them by EU green laws. They say that they simply cannot keep their industry afloat, the agriculture industry afloat, under the pressure from the EU's Green Deal demands. I mean, we saw, I suppose, the protests today, but this is a culmination of protests that have been taking place across Europe for the last number of weeks. What form have they taken? Yeah, that's right. We've seen protests in Germany. We've seen protests in France. Uh, today, in fact, we saw uh, tractors as well drive from uh, Portugal to the Spanish border. This is an EU issue. As you were saying, Kira. there's also been like uh, pr protests that are, that are of the like in Ireland today. There really is this sort of upsurging of, of farmers from across the European Union who are worried about these rules. Now, the, the interesting part here is that we're heading towards European Parliament elections in June. Right now, these farmers are concerned about the rules, but they're also going to be able to vote and they're going to be able to get other people on their side to vote. So this is becoming not just a sort of 
day-to-day uh, -day issue for the farmers of what they're able to do, but it's becoming a very big political issue. And um, as you said there, you know, there was reports of police, I think, being pelted by fireworks, by eggs and beer bottles, um, bales of hay being set on fire. Um, I think in response to those, some of the protesters being doused by police. Um, it certainly seemed to get quite heated. And there has also been allegations that there was sort of a far-right element um, present in some of their protests today. Did you see any evidence of that? Yeah, well, this is where it gets interesting. There is a far-right element in some of the farmers' groups, specifically when you look at the, the groups that have been uh, organised in the Netherlands. But there are also other groups that are, that are organised by more sort of workers' movements with more of a socialist bent. At the moment, they're all farmers. Clearly, there are political leanings amongst some of the groups, but because they're di from different countries, from the Netherlands, from Luxembourg, from France, they have different sort of political party allegiances in the different member states. As you said, there were some pretty, uh, pretty major scenes. We saw uh, clashes with police. Uh, the police at the end of the day, when it got dark this evening, they decided that they'd had enough. They started spraying the whole of the square, trying to clear people away. And the tractors then started to leave. And finally, for the people of Brussels, especially, the entire city has been completely snarled up today. If you've got in your car, a sort of 10-minute journey is taking you or an hour or two if you had to go anywhere near the centre. Right. So for the people of Brussels, they'll be happy to, to see the tractors gone. I'm sure. Uh, Jack Parrock, thank you for bringing us uh, that update. Uh, Verona, you've just come from a protest this evening in Gori. What exactly is it that the farmers here are protesting about? Well, first of all, they're protesting in solidarity with their European counterparts and farmers. But they've also, we had long conversations this evening. I was there for about an hour and 15 minutes. And I think one farmer particularly said to me that he stayed in farming because he hated paperwork. And at the age of 42, he now finds the administration burden greater than that of the work he has to do. Um, they're all very, very concerned about the late payments huge issue for them, the fact that they can't even get the money that's subsidising them on time. Their children are not willing to enter into the sector because they can't see a viable living in it. I'm very concerned about the welfare of farmers and their mental health. It's becoming a big, big issue. But you but said that there's been a vast amount of damage being done to exports yeah. in this country. What figures are you using to back up that claim? From? Well, all week I've been hearing from, well, for the last two weeks I've been engaging with hauliers and exporters who've had huge damage. I mean, millions of pounds worth of damage. Like, the French have always been radical, very radical. And what is amazing, people, is that it hasn't been covered by the national media, that we get a protest at the European Parliament today and it's covered. But the, farmer, the uh, farmers in France have been burning produce for the last two weeks, setting trucks on fire, setting trailers on fire, on, you know, emptying loads of wine, meat, you name it. And it has been unbelievable, the damage that's caused. And what's amazing about this is the damage they've caused from a carbon perspective probably is immeasurable. And, and the amount of produce okay. that has gone by the wayside, it's just not understandable. But our farmers are saying they've had enough. Um, do you accept what the farmers are saying, that the administrative burden that has been put on them because of green regulations coming from the EU is, is swallowing them up? Yeah, I haven't seen any direct evidence that, uh, for example, what's called the, the Green New Deal imposes additional um, administrative burdens on farmers. Farmers obviously 
have to comply with a fair amount of administration anyway. And the reason, there's a good reason for that. And the reason is they're in receipt of a lot of taxpayers' money. So anyone who receives substantial funding from the taxpayer has to account for it. So a lot of what we call administrative burden is in fact making sure that that accounting is done correctly. Now, one thing I, I would probably slightly uh, differ with your correspondent from, from Brussels in terms of a focus on this, right? Um, his suggestion is this is a kind of a green tape issue. Now, I was listening to the European Commission vice president earlier today, and what he said, and I quote, he said, we've had a number of extreme meteorological events, droughts, floods in various parts of Europe. There's a clear negative effect on output, on revenue and on farmers' incomes. He said the extreme weather is driving up the cost of production and squeezing revenues for farmers right across Europe. So on the one hand, we're talking about green tape. And on the other hand, we're talking about the climate emergency actually costing farmers not millions, but billions, and going in a single direction, Kira. OK, what about the other aspect of what the reporter was saying was the suggestion that their farmers are being, I suppose, manipulated in some way by a more far-right element that's perhaps a more Eurosceptic element? I think that that's pretty clear. And we've seen that, for example, in Dutch politics this year, an extraordinary situation where effectively a far-right group got 25% of the vote, which is a really scary proposition for European politics. But I would suggest, uh, leaving the far-right, let's take that as a given. There's also another group at play here as well. And that is, if you look at the farm to fork, this is the European Union strategy for 2030. Among its provisions are a reduction in pesticide use and in fertilizer use in agriculture by up to 50% by 2030. And I can assure you that the other group at a European level who are trying to make sure this never happens is the agri-chemical industry. And they've co-opted, in my view, groups like Copa Cogia, the farmers' union, at a European level to okay. try to make sure that we don't get that type of reform. OK, Dennis, are you being... Do you think our farmers being manipulated here in some ways? I think there's a, just a massive frustration down there in every country across Europe with the rules and regulations that are being imposed on farmers. <clears throat> now, in the last four years, I've had 50-plus between terms, conditions, rules and regulations imposed on me as a, as a dairy farmer in Kilkenny. Uh, but now, it's not that we don't agree with some of these regulations and rules. Some of them are, have serious environmental benefits, but some of them don't. And they're the and ones what, that... You say there's been 50. What is the administrative burden that that's put huge, on you as a farmer? Huge, huge. Like how many hours could you put a figure on it? All you're looking at, I mean, at one stage you went and done your day's work uh, and you came in and relaxed. Now you do your day's work and you come in and sit down a couple of hours of paperwork to record what you've done and what you haven't done. And you, First of all, you have to check, are you allowed to do it? But it's the rules and regulations and the cost that that incurs on farmers. And yet, the consumer is not willing to pay. And what's really frustrating farmers is you have the EU now pushing for a Mercosur deal to be concluded before the European Parliament elections, which is going to allow cheap, unregulated un beef okay, into the country. In fairness, the Taoiseach has come out, I think, this evening and said it wouldn't be fair to implement or to ratify that Mercosur deal in its current form. Yeah, but I mean, the, the, the threat is still hanging over there, but the consumer is not willing to pay for the environmental and sustainable food that we produce, so we're really caught in a bind here. OK, in terms of the point, I suppose, that John made, look, yes, there will be an administrative burden, but there will be where you're getting a serious amount of subsidies from the EU, where you're getting taxpayers' money. That's the, that's the quid pro quo. The, 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 we're really caught between two stools here in the sense that the cost of producing food in this environmentally and sustainable way, which farmers want to do if they were paid for it, but the problem is I'm getting paid a similar price for my product as I was 40 years ago and the subsidies that I get from the EU have never been index linked. They're actually 
down. They've been cut by 40% in the last 20 years. So not alone am I not getting paid for my product that I produce and produce in the environmentally uh, way that the, that the EU de demand of me and which we're willing to do. The consumer won't pay. The subsidies have been cut. So my income is squeezed. So where do I go? OK, Timmy Dooley, do you think Irish farmers have the same reason to be as outraged as the farmers we saw, let's say, in France or in Brussels today? Yeah, I, I'm not so sure. I mean, I talk to farmers all the time. I live in a rural community. I live amongst farmers. I, I was born on a small farm. And I, I see the stress and pressure that they're under on a continuous basis. But product price have, has improved and increased over the past three to four years. And whilst I agree with everything that has been said, I, I still recognise that the consumer is prepared to pay a little bit more. They're certainly paying more for beef. Uh, the price of milk has increased. But there is a significant burden on farmers in terms of the investment that they now have to put in. The, the department and the government are assisting them with it to try to bring the standards up to an appropriate level from an environmental perspective. And I have to say... That the are they overburdened by that, do you think? Because that's what Dennis and that's what a lot of it's, prote it's, protesters it's, were saying today. We're overburdened it's by It's challenging. But when I talk to farmers and I talk to their representatives, as I do every week, um, they get climate change. Um, they really understand it. They've seen the impact in sort of milder winters, much wetter summers, the impact that that has in terms of getting their fodder in, the impact that it has in, 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 in their growing of grain, and the impact that it has on lands being flooded. So they know something has to be done and they're prepared to work now. They can't carry all the burden, and this government has been very clear in terms of the investment that it puts in and will continue to put in. But it's, 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 not, it's not an easy problem to fix in terms of decarbonising agriculture. It's we one have of the difficulties, very... I think, Tom, uh, Timmy, that you've perhaps suggested before, is that there are so many very, very small farms in this country yeah, I, for whom, I'm sure, an administrative burden like that is, is excessive given the small nature of it, their farm. It is, but, but people who are born onto farms... They, they, they oftentimes recognise that there's not enough in that small farm, 50 acres, 20 suckler cows. That's not enough to raise a family on. So they uh, take an off-farm income, they go to work as well, and they maintain the farm out of love of the land, out of continuing the practice that was handed down to them. But is that sustainable? Well, it, it is so long as they're prepared to do it, but they're not making money in those situations, but they do it because of, you know, the livelihood that they have grown into. And that does put significant burden on. For the more intensive farmers, for sure, uh, it's a significant burden, but they're at a different level, and many of them recognise that they've got to do it. Would they like to lift some of the burden? Of course. And I think we should be all the time looking as new schemes come on, we should be always trying to ensure and doing a fact check and doing a check. Is this, is this absolutely necessary? Is it benefiting... Uh, the farmer, is it benefiting the community, is it benefiting okay. the environment? And if it isn't... OK, um, one of the points that you made at the beginning there was, was the export industry being decimated, and I do have the figures there from last year, 19 billion in agri-food exports, I think a 22% increase in 2021. That wouldn't suggest that our export figures are being decimated. And Timmy's saying, actually, product prices oh, sorry. have been Sorry, resilient. what I meant by decimated was through the French farmers. Millions of pounds worth of product destroyed. Sorry, Kira, just okay. to clarify. Uh, the issue I have with what Timmy is saying, subsidies are provided to farmers to keep families' food bills down. It's to provide cheap food. It always has been. You heard what Dennis said. They have not increased in the last number of years, 20-odd years. So the costs have risen exponentially. The farmer is getting no more. Housewives are certainly paying more. Okay. I'm not finished now, Timmy, and I didn't interrupt you. I think the reality is that the cost of producing food is going to get 
dearer. And when farmers decide to leave this industry, we will see the damage that has do been you, caused. Do you believe we, we, we need just, to subsidise farmers I'm, further, John Gibbons? I think what we need to do, of course we need to subsidise food production. That's, that really is a given. But in Ireland, we have, if you'll pardon the pun, put all our eggs in one basket. And that basket is beef and dairy sector. We're disproportionately uh, overcommitted to that one sector. It means, for example, that while we've got a lot of productivity, 90% of that productivity is, is, is for export. And much of that export is going beyond European markets. That begs the question, if we're and, really... And just as to be Verona, clear, for, for people at home, yeah. what's wrong with that? OK, if, as Verona said, you know, at EU level, we're putting billions into agriculture to keep food prices down, how does that square with sending, you know, hundreds of millions of euros worth of, say, milk powder to China. In what way is the European taxpayers getting value out of subsidising milk powder to China? OK, no, let Dennis back in on that. Wanted to get the in. way it is, we have a global crisis in climate. We need to produce food in the most sustainable manner in whatever part of the world we can do that. Ireland is probably the most sustainable country in the world to produce milk and beef because we have a grass-based system. If we don't produce it here, we ended up being produced in factory farms in America, in Brazil or wherever, and uh, biodiversity and, and, and whole continents being absolutely raped Do you, do you, do you accept that point, just with John Gibbons? I think probably, Verona, you would agree I that would. you're going to just, well, just shut down an industry here to yeah. transfer it somewhere else. But, 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 the, but something that's really way. important about this, it's how we measure carbon. Ireland's methane emissions are measured incorrectly. Richard Bruton, former minister, has admitted that. The other side of it is... I think John, our we, food we have, we have, just to finish this point, Verona, we have an our EPA. food production, our carbon, is it's not where the food's consumed, it's the production. Mm. If Germany's ma car manufacturing sector was, ma was measured in that way, Germany would close down. The farmers don't accept that methane has been measured correctly or that we should be responsible for the production sure. okay. for the production of food that's Let's not John just consumed. back in there. I'm just conscious of time I here. don't think it's a good idea to start picking fights with our experts. So we have, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency that give us the data on this, and it's done using international measures. So I don't think it's a great idea uh, for public representatives to start basically saying, we don't like your science, give us some other science. Well, I the think science we need to stick with the it. Science 15 years yeah. ago told us to buy diesel cars. That wasn't 15, science, Verona. Well, it was that according to the Greens. It science. was. Now the science no. has okay. changed I just want to radically. Move on, I suppose, because there was an interesting concession given today by Ursula von der Leyen to delay by one year key um, measure to encourage biodiversity and what was seen as a move to try and appease farmers in Europe. Are you concerned that given that this is a a year of elections that we are going to see some of these measures put off in order to appease no, farmers and, and protect the farmer votes? I don't think so. I've always believed when it comes to climate change that there's a journey and you've got to bring people with you. And I've seen working with farming communities the change in attitude over the past 10 years. We talked about climate change to farmers 10 years ago. Mm. They didn't want to hear about it. They were, they were a lot slower to accept. But, but like everybody That's else, not true. they have moved, with respect, they have moved a lot in terms of their responsibilities. That's society generally. A lot more people now are focusing on climate okay. change, not just farmers, 
but everybody. I just want to bring Dennis in very briefly because <clears throat> the protests we saw today and the protests we've seen across Europe are completely different to the protests we saw this evening at 7 o'clock with people bringing their tractors in protests around roads without really causing interruption. Yes. Do you think you could move to what we were seeing in, in Brussels today? Are you willing to go that I, far? I think the frustration is building out there. I mean, I've, I've attended meetings all over the country for the last probably three months and every meeting you go to... It, the, the cost is one thing, the income is another thing, but the frustration at the bureaucracy that's involved in farming and the lack of support <clears throat> for the farmer to do the right thing. Every other sector is supported to do the right thing. Farmers are being regulated. And the okay, work all right. involved in running a farm. I mean, if you yeah. sit in an office, you're getting yeah. 20, 30 euros an hour. Farmers are out tonight calving cows. And they're not they're everybody in an office getting that. Well, <laughs> well I can assure you. To be I can fair, assure you. All right, look, I'm going to leave that conversation uh, there to, for now. My thanks to uh, Dennis for coming in to us this evening. Timmy, Verona and John are going to be staying with me because up next, the Israeli... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ambassador claims there's bias in Ireland over Gaza. We speak to her. Do stay with us. Well, Israel has described talks in Paris aimed at brokering a new ceasefire deal in Gaza as constructive and could lead to a framework for a new truce. Well, earlier I spoke to the Israeli ambassador, Dana Erdik, and I began by asking her about that possible deal. I think we're continuing to do everything in our power to, in all possible channels, to bring back the kidnapped home. And we're talking about 136 people that need to come back immediately. And we've said it repeatedly, repeatedly and we've had uh, different organizations and international communities saying that they need to come back home. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen Hamas use that optimism and that goodwill, not just of Israel, but of the entire world, and break the recent, the last ceasefire. And I hope we can reach it and see everybody come back. OK, what has been reported is that there would be anywhere between a four-week and an eight-week uh, ceasefire and that throughout that time, a certain number of hostages would be exchanged for Palestinian prisoners, perhaps one hostage for every three Palestinian prisoners. Is this what you're hearing? Sometimes the numbers are, are even higher. Again, the abuse of Hamas, of the value that we have for life, and the steps that we will take in order to bring back our people. 
It's a very cynical playbook that we've seen Hamas play time and time again. There are different logistics to this possible uh, deal, possible negotiation. But again, I think we come to these possibilities with the clear intention to bring everybody back. And we reject the different categories that Hamas has put of who comes back first. This is absurd. All of them need to come back. OK. What happens once all the hostages are returned, if we got to that point? What happens in the Gaza Strip then? Well, first of all, we need to eliminate the threat of Hamas on Israelis and on Israel and that threat that they pose on their own population. So just to be clear, if Hamas were to release all of the hostages, the IDF would continue the bombardment of the Gaza Strip until they got to the point that they felt Hamas was successfully eradicated? I don't think that we are at this point of saying what we'll do strategically in a military term. But right now, we see the threat still imminent on our doorstep. And we hear repeatedly the leaders of Hamas say that they will perform the atrocities of October 7th again and again. We see Hamas abuse their own population. We see them steal aid from its population. We see them using them as human shields. So we need to free Gaza from Hamas. Is that what you would suggest you are doing for the ordinary innocent civilians of Gaza? You are freeing them from Hamas. Is that what you're doing? Well, right now, this war is a tragedy. It's a war that we didn't want, that we didn't start, and we are suffering along with the people of Gaza. And when You wouldn't talk, suggest there's an equivalence, would you, between the suffering in Israel and the suffering in Gaza now? I think tragedies are not to be measured. But yes, the suffering is on both sides. And right now, the suffering of the Palestinians under Hamas, I don't think it's been discussed enough, uh, especially here in Ireland. I think what we need to be honest about is the responsibility of Hamas, not just since this war started, but what they're doing to their population, that needs to be addressed. They okay. need to be held accountable. OK, let's talk about the responsibility of Israel here. Do you see Israel existing side by side with a Palestinian state in Gaza? When we disengaged from Gaza in 2005, that is what we hoped for. We even left... Uh, but I'm talking about now, Ambassador. I don't think that even the Palestinian Authority sees itself living next to Hamas rule in Gaza. I don't think the international community wants to see Hamas continue its rule and abuse of population in Gaza. So this is a question for the international community, not just us. Is there a mindset within Israel that is open to the perspective of a two-state solution? I think throughout history, we've shown that with reliable partners, we are willing to discuss. I think the, the uh, enlargement of normalization agreements that we've had with different countries, the peace agreements that we've reached, the discussions that we've had with the Palestinian Authority, I think we've proven time and time again that when there is an opportunity, we will sit down and discuss. And but what I we that want... Is not, with all due respect, Ambassador, that is not the comments that we have heard from... Prime Minister Netanyahu in the last number of weeks, where he has spoken about the idea of a two-state solution being an endangerment to Israel. He seems to have written that possibility off. I think it needs to be clear that what the Prime Minister said, that the Palestinians should have the ability to rule themselves, but we do not want them to have the 
another opportunity to threaten Israel like they did and performed in October 7th. What Hamas carried out cannot, we cannot see that again, that cannot happen again. And we will do the responsibility as every government, our responsibility is to make sure that that doesn't happen. Okay, so you say then the continue, I suppose, aim and objective of Israel and the IDF now is the eradication of Hamas. This war has been going on for 118 days. So far, we have 27,019 casualties. In return, somewhere between five and 9,000 members of Hamas have been killed. I think 9,000 is the IDF's figure, but I believe that's been disputed. That is 30% of Hamas at this point. If you wanted to destroy, eradicate all of Hamas, are you willing to kill three times as many civilians? I reject that question, but I'll start just when we talk about numbers. Those alleged numbers come from uh, Hamas ministry in Gaza. So we cannot know the numbers. And it was even the, the president of the ICJ that said that we might never know the actual numbers because these are numbers that are given to us by a terror organization. I do agree that, again, as I said, every death is a tragedy and should end, and it can end. It could have ended yesterday. I'm just wondering, is there any limit to the number of innocent civilians, innocent children that will be killed in your pursuit to eradicate Hamas? But that is a very cynical question because we don't want to see any more deaths. This could have happened. This could have ended. This shouldn't have started to begin with if Hamas didn't have started this. But right now, if the, all of the kidnapped are released and Hamas declares a ceasefire, and yet, yes, we should not, we don't need to see any more deaths. But I suppose you would wonder why Hamas would declare a ceasefire at this point when Israel continues to say it wants to eradicate Hamas and when the Prime Minister of Israel says he is not open to the idea of the two states living side by side. I don't see, think that Hamas will be a part of any future state or any future resolution. Hamas is a genocidal terror organization whose aim is to eradicate Israel, Israelis, and Jewish people. It says so shamelessly, bluntly in its charter. The leaders repeatedly say it publicly. Are there and, are um, members of your own government, you would admit, more far-right members of your own government, who have also talked about the eradication of the Palestine state of Gaza? I think they talked about Hamas, but I'll make a difference between what a terror organization said and performed on October 7th. It's not that just they said things, they also performed it. And there are politicians here who also uh, call out, for example, for a globalized intifada here in the streets of Dublin. And I understand that that is part of what a democratic country is. And I'll make a very distinct difference between what they say and what a terror organization writes, says, and performs. And since October 7th, they have been trying to kill more and more Israelis. Okay, if but South were... Africa say that you are ignoring the ruling of the International Court of Justice, which has asked you to do all that you can to prevent death of ordinary citizens. And they say that has been ignored over the last couple of days where hundreds of ordinary citizens have died. I think South Africa conveniently, uh, very one-sided reading of this ruling. What 
the ICJ declared on January 26 uh, was a dismissal of their claim for uh, secession of the fire because even the court understand that Israel has the right to defend itself. What we've seen from the court is a cry and a call for an immediate release of all the kidnapped. OK, there was also a call for Israel mm. to do all it can to prevent the death of ordinary citizens. That hasn't happened. Well, the call is for Israel to comply with international law, and this is what Israel is doing you under the rule of law. I'm sorry, Ambassador. 50%, almost 50% of the bombs being used by Israel are unguided bombs. They are not targeted bombs. They are likely to result in the death of ordinary people. We I would should. question whether that is not in, uh, that is in accordance with international law. What we're doing is trying to minimise civilian casualties, and we've shown it repeatedly. If it's through uh, alerts that we give in advance to people, uh, in requests from them to evacuate, in announcing where we will hit and what the next target is, because we don't want to be to see more civilian casualties. Unfortunately, Hamas also abuses that. When we say that they use their people as human shields, they prevent them from evacuating. They don't let them use the terror tunnels infrastructure in order to use them as shelter. They abuse all of that, and that needs to be said publicly. Okay, you mentioned at the beginning of our interview the value for life that Israel has. You mention here the support that you've seen among Irish people for Palestine, although I think you said it was specifically towards Hamas. Do you think some of the sympathy that you're seeing in this country is because some of the statistics that we are seeing coming out of the Gaza Strip? We have UNICEF this week saying that there are a 1,000 children in Gaza who have had one or both legs amputated since the beginning of this war. The Euro-Mediterranean Human Rights Monitor, a non-profit group, has said 24,000 children have lost one or more of their parents since this war began. So anywhere in the region of 12,000 children under the age of 18 have died because of the war that has been carried out by Israel, and you will say because of Hamas. Is that why? There is such sympathy among the Irish population. And does that not fly in the face of your earlier comment that you value life? Well, I'll separate because that uh, question goes into different categories. First of all, again, we don't have the exact numbers. And we don't have the... We, what we have is number provided by Hamas, the different UN organizations on the ground. I know that they're also in the hands of Hamas, in a way, we didn't see UNICEF call out for the whereabouts of Ariel and Kfir Bibas, the two toddlers held kidnapped by Hamas. Um, so we see a very comfortable silence of UN organizations when it comes to Israeli children, Israeli women that were brutally, brutally sexually violated, mutilated. We okay. don't hear those cry. Okay, but and I understand the condemnation and I understand the difficulty that Israeli people must have over those two children who are being held hostages and I'm sure most people watching tonight will hope that they are released. But to go back to those numbers, a thousand children who have had a leg or legs amputated, 24,000 without a parent, no 12,000 child dead, should live like this. No child should live like is this. That a price you worth are paying? right. This is a tragedy, but it needs to be addressed correctly. And this is what I'm missing 
when I hear the conversations here and when I hear the media coverage here. I don't hear people talk about all the misfires of rockets of Hamas that fall into Gaza, killing their own civilians. I don't hear anything about the buildings booby-trapped by Hamas, killing their people in Gaza. Will you Gaza. take responsibility for some of those deaths and injuries? But this is war, yes. Part of what we're doing is minimizing those casualties. We are asking people to evacuate, and then we're condemned for asking them to be evacuated. We ask people to concentrate in certain areas. We've seen Hamas abuse hospitals, abuse mosques, abuse schools. I'm asking I don't there are hear... plenty of people who question whether there are any safe areas in the Gaza Strip now. Be as, that Rafa, as long be that as Canyonis. Hamas is in the ruling, I don't know if the Palestinian people can be safe from their own government that rules them. And this is why, if Irish people care about Palestinians, it's not even about Israel. For the sake of the Palestinian people in Gaza, they need to be freed from Hamas. OK, Ambassador Dan Ehrlich, thank you for coming in to us this evening. Thank you. Uh, well, Fianna Fáil Senator Timmy Dooley, Independent TD Verona Murphy and Environmental Campaigner John Gibbons are still here with me. I'd come to you first, uh, Verona. The allegation being made the, by the ambassador there is that there's a real bias, a kind of a short-sightedness in Ireland when it comes to the Hamas-Israel war. Would you agree? Look, I've been very consistent from the start. I don't agree with either side. I haven't taken a side. What I would very much like to see here is a halting, uh, complete ceasefire. And I think I'm, I'm hopeful that the Paris talks will yield that a ceasefire first, that there will be a hostage exchange primarily that will then lead to uh, humanitarian aid being let through. And I think we need to build on whatever number of days that ceasefire yields. Ireland primarily can be a peace broker and should be a peace broker at the very first opportunity. And that's what I want to see. I mean, the thoughts of any child going through what the ambassador... And, and, you know, she didn't flinch. I think the reality of this war, it's barbaric, and it's on both sides, and it needs to stop, and we need to do everything that we can within reason. What was quite difficult, I think, to try and establish there, and I spent, as you can see, quite a long time speaking with the ambassador this evening, was what the roadmap to peace here would look like or what happens at the end of this current war, Timmy. Yeah, it's very difficult from the entrenched position that the ambassador has taken, which is in line with uh, President Netanyahu. Uh, they're making it very clear that they're not going to stop until they obliterate Hamas. But it's clear that to obliterate Hamas, you ultimately will have to obliterate the Palestinian population of the Gaza Strip. And I don't think that's acceptable in this day and age. We all get that Hamas are a terrorist organisation, but unfortunately they're embedded amongst the Palestinian population in Gaza. So, so it's not acceptable for possibly... Israel and the IDF to just, just obliterate an entire uh, sector of people in order to achieve their ultimate aim. What I, do you think Ireland could be saying to the ambassador about the lessons that have been learned here about how you ultimately achieve peace between two warring factions? The ambassador is an intelligent woman, as most of the uh, Israeli people are. They know that if you continue to hammer uh, a population of people, you're effectively a recruiter for those t that terrorist organisation. So the notion that somehow you can obliterate Hamas, who, for which we all would want to see destructed and dismantled because of their outrageous abuse, not just of Israelis, but of their own Palestinian people. 
But if the, the, the result of your actions in, in an effort to, to, to take them out of business, you're taking out the entire population. That doesn't make any sense in a, in a modern world. Um, one of the real difficulties that she had, John Gibbons, was that she felt the Irish people had not been forthright enough in their condemnation of Hamas. Would you agree? Um, I don't think so. I think she, the ambassador also used the term proportionality somewhere along the way, and that's certainly a term I'd like to return to. I mean, I think everybody was appalled by October the 7th. Let's not beat around the bush. Um, 1,200 people killed, 250 hostages taken. That is a given. But every day since October the 7th, October the 8th to the present day, every single day, we have seen hundreds of Palestinian civilians butchered. Now, the type of weapons being used, for example, we know that in South Gaza alone, where the Palestinians were ordered to flee, 220 2,000-pound bombs were dropped, including on refugee camps. Now, you only drop 2,000-pound bombs on civilian areas if your intention is mass killing. So I think it's incredibly important that we keep in focus that the objective here of the Israeli authorities is mass killing. And also to get to a point where, where it is impossible for the civilians to remain in Gaza. And they also, Kira, want to destroy the population. All right, look, we're going to have to leave it there. My thanks to Timmy, to Verona and to John for coming in to us this evening. Next, a former tenant who says he was evicted after he complained about CCTV in his rented home. Do stay with us for that. <laughs> Welcome back. Well, a former tenant of the controversial landlord, Mark Goddard, has said no one is doing anything to protect renters in Dublin. Salvador Chavez Morales claims he was effectively evicted from his accommodation last year after he complained about the installation of a closed-circuit camera in his shared living space. Here's a special Tonight Show report from Paul Colgan. Salvador Chavez Morales came to Ireland last June from Mexico to study English. Through friends... He was alerted to a room available for rent on Dublin's Capel Street. Kind of nice, nice flat. There were two big rooms. Uh, in one of them were four people, and in the other one were three people. And there were a single room, which was uh, the one that I took. It was kind of improvised, this room. It was, wasn't exactly um, um, a room. There were... Uh, um, a bed, and that's it. Initially happy with what were admittedly cramped conditions, he says he soon became concerned with the installation of a CCTV camera outside his bedroom door. It was looking like on the common area in the kitchen, uh, but it was actually just outside of my door, of my, of my room's door. Uh, so they can look all around the, the corridor through the bathroom, to the, to the exit door. We were paying for a place to live, to stay, to relax, to, to enjoy, and supposedly, but we were like so um, limited on this kind of things. Salvador's ultimate landlord was Luxembourg-based Mark Goddard, who has rented out numerous properties in Ireland and has frequently been mentioned in disputes with the Residential Tenancies Board. He currently faces legal action over allegations. He rented out three short-let Dublin properties without proper planning permission. 
Salvador says that within a day of complaining to the agency about the camera, he was notified through its web portal that he was to be evicted. So in, in this portal, they sent me the, the letter by, by WhatsApp as well, uh, telling me that I have just seven days to leave the apartment because of my bad behavior. I, I asked what, what, what uh, bad behavior you are talking about because I didn't do anything wrong, as I, as I know. I asked for a reason, but they didn't give me anything. In the absence of affordable accommodation, many people, particularly foreigners, are finding themselves subject to sharp practice. Salvador says that a week after he took his concerns to the RTB, representatives from the letting agency came to the apartment and started clearing out his room. They started taking out the, the bed and the mattress from the um, room. They decided to took out the door as well. They changed the coats of all the, all the doors as well, the, the flat and the building, the main door. After spending a month living on the floor of his room and barely leaving the apartment for fear he couldn't get back in, Salvador found alternative accommodation. It's, it's very sad, actually it's very sad um, how these um, landlords take advantage of these situations. And but what is more disappointing is that no one does anything. You know, they, they do these kind of things because nobody does nobody really does anything against them? Paul Colgan reporting there. Solicitors representing landlord Mark Goddard declined to comment for that report. Well, that's it from us this week. Have a lovely bank holiday weekend. We'll see you back here Tuesday. Till then, take care. Good night. Acast anbefaler. Mit navn er Anders Morgenthaler. Over for mig sidder Roald Bergmann. Vi har lavet en ny podcast, der hedder Dopaminklubben. Og Dopaminklubben er en klub, hvor ADHD er fucking sjovt, og hvor det griner. Det behøver ikke at være super alvorligt. Vi skider skidt af alle de der podcasts og forklarer mig nederen der. Vi gør grin med vores ADHD. Mulig ADHD. Ja, vi udreder mig, fordi nogen siger, at jeg har det. Jeg ved det ikke rigtigt, det finder vi ud af. Vi har i hvert fald lavet vedmål. Ind og lyt til Dopaminklubben. Hver uge udkommer vi. Der laver vi sjov og spas med at have den her vidunderlige dopaminmakker.